Be seated. Well, good morning. It is a beautiful day. Although I have to say that Dirk is coming this week, but he was planning on coming out here either Tuesday or Wednesday, but because of Fernando's fervent prayers for more snowfall, he may be coming on Thursday, it's quite possible. So we'll have to see how that goes. Well, we're here today to discuss worship, which is the last letter in our acrostic. Um, And it is appropriate that we would do that. And it's appropriate that it is the last letter because it really encompasses all the preceding letters of the acrostic. We have been discussing that and our vision statement as a church really to prepare our hearts for a new pastor, but also to prepare our hearts moving forward. You know, we all who have lived a number of years um, know that there are different chapters in our lives, different pages that we turn when things change somewhat from the way that we knew them to be. And I suspect that is what will happen starting next week in the life of our church, that things will change somewhat and uh, there will be different people preaching, different pastoral care, but coming from the same Jesus Christ who teaches and who gives us pastoral care. But my intention has been that these sermons that I've given have opened your eyes to a deeper meaning than what you would normally think by looking at the descriptions that are appearing on the banner. We've discussed love one another, demonstrating true sacrificial love which is visible to the outside world so that it would want that love as well. Jesus commands us to love each other as I have loved you. Jesus calls us to a sacrificial love, a love characterized by selfless service to others. In his last meal before he was going to die in the youth and we discussed that this week, that last meal, Jesus strips down to a servant's outfit, wraps a towel around his waist, gets a wash basin, and proceeds to wash the disciples' filthy, stinky, sweaty feet. And then he tells them that they are to do the exact same thing. When is the last time that we have washed the feet of those around us, either figuratively or literally? When's the last time that we seriously considered doing that? Because that's what we're called to do when we are loving one another. We discuss biblical truth and how it is mediated to us from God by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is the sole and final authority of all matters of faith and living. Through Jesus, God is restoring everything that sin ruined. False preaching from the pulpit is fairly easy to identify, but... One of our challenges as a church is to uncover and root out false teachings in various books and materials used in our small groups and in Sunday school classes. This your elders try to do, and so should you. You have to be the Bereans from Acts, examine the scriptures to see if the things being taught are so. And don't assume that just because someone occupies a place of authority or a place of teaching that they're necessarily right. It has to accord with the scripture, and that's our job. We next discovered or uh, um, talked about gospel sharing and evangelism. 
And although our vision statement tells us we must share our faith within the sphere of influence that God gives us, we discuss that Jesus calls each of us to sow the seed extravagantly into all kinds of soil indiscriminately. There is no end to the supply of seed which we are provided. Some argue that street preachers or evangelizing people with whom we have no relationship are not effective means. How presumptuous of us to believe that God is not able to use his word with whoever and in whatever fashion he sees fit. Especially when Jesus gives the example of how we're to do it, to scatter indiscriminately. Let us not argue with God about that. On the Gospel Show, we also discuss Jesus' command to make disciples and to teach them. And this includes everyone around us, but particularly the folks sitting around you in church. You might be a discipler, or several steps ahead of the person sitting next to you. You might be a disciple, several steps behind the person sitting next to you. But either way, we're called to engage in the discipleship process, which involves us learning how to follow Jesus Christ and learning about the truth of his word and teaching others to do the same. If you've never learned the fundamentals of your faith, because what we find in the the church in the United States is that people make professions of faith, they become believers, and then the church says, okay, you're on your own now, go study some scripture, go do something. So if you've never learned what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, well, we're going to begin to offer that to you either one-to-one or in class. We as your elders and other teachers in the church are going to allow, are going to do that. And as we discussed in our Colossians study, I pray, my personal prayer, is that, as Paul said, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the will of God for each one of you to know him and his Son, Jesus Christ. Make it a priority this year to do that. Last week we discussed helping hands and putting our faith into action. Again, Jesus calls for a radical love that requires a complete submission to him. Are we actually willing to give up our lives for our friends because Jesus gave up his life for us? It is not simply a question of whether we think our heart is in a position to be willing to do that. A lot of times, well, you know, I, I would be willing to do that if I needed to. But God tells us time and again in his word that the heart is deceitful and a dreadful liar. We deceive ourselves all of the time. Of course, we're willing to say that we would give up everything or anything if it came right down to it, but then we're full of excuses why we're not able to give up our Saturday to help at camp or a Wednesday to help a youth group, or a little extra money, or a little extra possession, or things we have on hand to give to someone else. As James says, faith without works is dead, or it's useless. And we saw that Jesus calls us to action, not merely knowledge. God replenishes our supplies so that we can continue to give it away. He doesn't replenish our supplies so that we can hoard it and keep it. 
He gives it to us so that we can give it to others and they can glorify God as well. And our reward eternal life and eternal joy with Jesus Christ. And this week we come to the end of our acrostic with the T, which stands for true worship. Our mission statement says, We believe God has called us out in part to be worshipers of him, giving him the glory and the honor only he deserves. Church worship is not about the style of music or the particular activities or mode that worship may take. It is about allowing hearts and minds to focus on God and praise him with an overflowing heart. And the scriptural references are John 4, 23 and 24. It says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven, which says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And finally, Psalm 51, verses 15 through 17 says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let us meditate on God's word and go to him in prayer. Father, we just pray on this day when we talk about worship that you would give us worshipful hearts, that you would give us hearts full of gratitude, hearts that cannot be kept quiet, hearts that would sing out your praise and your glory within this church and to the creation around us. We pray that you would allow your words to penetrate into our hearts, that we might carry it with us into the world and be motivated by it all week long, Lord, and we pray that you would just show us how we are to worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, true worship. What actually is worship? Well, one definition of worship is ascribing to God the honor he is due, declaring his glory in both words of praise and acts of obedience. That's kind of heady stuff. John Piper defines worship as, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly, and then to respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, by treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. So it's a heart that overflows and pours out to those around us. And Piper is talking about the inner essence of worship, but in fact there are two kinds of worship. Our personal worship, and then our corporate worship. We're here today for corporate worship, but we're also expressing personal worship within that. Bruce Leafblad describes corporate worship as communion with God, in which believers, by grace, center their minds' attentions and heart's affections on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to his greatness and to his word. Well, simply stated, we worship in our day-to-day life by what we do and what we say, and we worship as a group on Sunday in the same way. You see, our God is a holy God who is deserving of worship, who desires worship. As sinners, we fall short of the standard necessary to approach a holy God. And in fact, God will not accept the worship of an unregenerate sinner, as we sang about. 
First Peter 3, 7 tells us not to sin in our relationships with our wives. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. David tells us in Psalm 38, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. And when we are in a state of sin, unregenerate sin or unconfessed sin, it is difficult to worship our God. Well, the good news, of course, is that all of our sins are forgiven us when we acknowledge them, confess them to God, turn from them, and believe and accept the fact that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross, and that he rules over death and sins through his resurrection and ascension into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. What wonderful news this is. Our God, who came up with this plan as a holy God, who is deserving of our worship because of that. And friends, if you are here today and have never invited the Lord Jesus into your life as Lord and Savior, today's your day. Confess your sins, repent of them, believe in your heart that Jesus died to pay the price for those sins, and he rose again to defeat the power of sin and death. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and you will be saved. Well, you know, but in our culture, we have reduced worship to what we like. We actually learn to experience the ongoing presence of Jesus by worshiping him in the way that he wants to be worshipped, not in the way that we like to worship. Many people resent God's preferences for worship. Well, it's boring. Oh, it's not interesting. The music's not right. There's all kinds of things. People want to worship God according to their own customs and preferences, and not necessarily solely for the purpose of exalting Jesus Christ. But God tells us in Philippians 2 that therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God exalts Jesus, wants us to exalt Jesus, so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. Worship is all about glorifying the Father. And God expects that worship will cost us something. He expects us to open our mouths and praise him loudly, even when we do not feel like it, or when it is inconvenient or embarrassing. Praise that costs us something is worship that Jesus is pleased to receive. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 tells us, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is jealous for his honor. He will not share our worship with another idol. In Exodus 25, God tells us, You shall not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Isaiah 48, God tells us that his name will not be profaned, and that my glory I will not give to another. We should tremble and rejoice in our worship. Our God is a consuming fire. Tremble that God is God and we are not, and rejoice at what he has done because he's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. We cannot approach, approach God cavalierly as we often do. 
In our prayer, our groups, our corporate worship, we should be filled with a holy fear and reverence because we are entering into the presence of the king of the universe and the king of all creation. Remarkably, God promises us, though, in James 4, 8, draw close to God. God will draw close to you. We must draw near to him in our worship. Now we get an example of corporate worship in Revelation 4.11 where the inhabitants of heaven, thousands times thousands, millions, say, shout, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When we know that, when we know this fact about God, then our heart is in the right place. Everything in our worship service should be designed and carried out not to call attention to us ourselves or to bring glory to ourselves, but to call attention to God and to cause people to think about God. As a church, we must and we do frequently evaluate the various elements in our Sunday services, including the preaching, the prayers, the worship songs, the special music, the Lord's Supper, even the announcements and the offerings are all part of this worship service. Are they really bringing glory to God in the way that they are done? Does our appearance when we are doing them bring glory to God? Sometimes we take the words of the song, come just as you are, a bit too literally, don't we? Are we exalting Jesus Christ and bringing him glory when we walk through these doors? Do we bring him our best? Remember the story of Cain and Abel. Cain brought a sacrifice, but he didn't bring his best, and God warned him. But we know the outcome of that story. Bring our best when we're worshiping to God. Bring our best heart, our best attitude, our best gifts with us. But let's take a look at what Jesus says about worship. The scriptural verse for our acrostic, but the hour is coming when it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus, in his word, tells us how we worship, in spirit and in truth. In John chapter 4, we're reading the account of Jesus and the woman at the well. Most of us are familiar with that. The woman denies Jesus a drink of water since he's a despised Jew. He says, give me a drink. She says, basically, no. Jesus turns the tables on her and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She insults Jesus by pointing out, he's got nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where then will you get this living water, she says. He tells her that whoever drinks of the water he gives will never thirst. But the water will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. And she again snarkily responds, asking Jesus to give her this water so she'll not be thirsty or even have to come to the well to draw water anymore. And then Jesus blows her out of the water. He describes her morally debased life, filling in details that no stranger could possibly know. And now she says, you're a prophet. And she's convicted of her need for forgiveness. And she then asks where she needs to go to meet God, to seek his grace and salvation. You see, because one of the major points of contention between the Jews and the Samaritans was that both believed under the Old Covenant God had directed them to worship in a specific place. But they didn't agree on where it was. The Samaritans accepted only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, 
And so they chose Mount Gerizim. It was that nearby session where Abraham had first built an altar to God, and it was from Mount Gerizim that the Israelites proclaimed the blessings of obedience to God's commandments in Deuteronomy. The Jews, who accepted the complete Old Testament canon, recognized that God had chosen Jerusalem as the place where he was to be worshipped. Well, Jesus unexpectedly replies to this woman that this issue is soon going to be irrelevant. Because in the near future, true worship would take place neither at Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. In fact, as history shows us, a few decades later in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And thousands of Samaritans were slaughtered on Mount Gerizim, essentially wiping out that whole race of people. And so also, though, more importantly, the New Covenant would render all ceremonies and rituals, whether Jewish or Samaritan, obsolete. They weren't going to be needed anymore. Jesus tells her that under the New Covenant, the place of worship was not important, but rather the nature of the worship was what was important. He tells her that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and that such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He doesn't say that they're going to seek, if our Father's going to seek these people to be his worshipers, those that are willing to worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what did Jesus mean by that? Well, true worshipers must worship in truth because truth has to do with what God's nature is. They can know that from God's revelation through his word. Their heart worship must be consistent with what Scripture teaches and must be centered on the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. They must worship in spirit because they can respond to this command only spiritually. Because genuine worship is carried on in the unseen spiritual realm, the realm of spiritual activity. Therefore, true worship involves not only our physical bodies, but our spirits as well. The immaterial aspect of our existence that primary, primarily acts in the unseen realm. When we pray, we're praying into the spiritual realm. Mary worshipped this way. At Luke 1, 46 and 47, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Paul tells us in 6.18, Pray at all times in the spirit with all power, prayer and supplication. And in Philippians 3.3, 3, he tells the church, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So worship must be internal and not merely external conformity to ceremonies and rituals, which the Jews did, and sometimes which we are inclined to fall into based upon our order of service or the different things that, well, we've always done it that way. But it must be from the heart. We must understand why we're doing the things that we're doing and understand how it glorifies God. And even though it's from the heart, true worship is more than mere feelings or emotions as well. Some modern worship music is designed with these repeating choruses that are designed and calculated to bring one to an ecstatic emotional state. You know, you've all been, oh, 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 you know. But true worship occurs when that part of a human being, our spirit, which, by the way, is similar 
to the divine nature, since God is spirit and he made us in his image and likeness, when that, that spirit meets with God and finds itself praising him for his love, for his wisdom, his beauty, his truth, his holiness, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, his power, and all of his other attributes. Our church service here on Sunday, therefore, is only really effective as worship when we can turn our attention away from the service itself and technical glitches or different things that happen and turn ourselves to God himself. We must approach God truthfully, meaning honestly and wholeheartedly. Jesus said of the people in his day in Mark 6, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. We must not pretend to worship, but must worship truthfully, knowing that our hearts are open to God. We must also worship on the basis of biblical revelation, as we discussed in our Inspired by Biblical Truth section. Mark 7, which we talked about above, condemns those who have been teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. When man says this is the way that we need to worship and they don't follow the word of God, then Jesus condemns them because that's not what God wants. Jesus says in John 17, 17, your word is truth, talking to the Father. Our worship must be in accord with the, in accord with the principles and admonitions of the Bible. John 1, 17 says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, finally, worshiping God in truth means that we must approach him and worship through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples at John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to come to God, including in worship, other than through Jesus Christ. When we come to God through Christ, we come in truth because he is the truth. We must come in God's way and not any way of human devising. God promises at Psalm 45, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Well, we know that prayer and worship are closely related. Prayer is talking to God through praise, confession, thanksgiving, intercession. Worship is meeting with God to praise him, to sing hymns, to expound God's word, yes, and to pray as well. Worship includes prayer and meditation. Reuben Torrey tells of the difficulty he had in the matter of prayer and how this changed. He said, The day came when I realized what real prayer meant. Realized that prayer was having an audience with God actually coming into the presence of God and asking and getting things from him. And the realization of that fact transformed my prayer life. Before that, prayer had been a mere duty, and sometimes a very irksome duty. But from that time on, prayer has not been merely a duty, but a privilege, one of the most highly esteemed privileges of life. Before that, the thought I had was, how much time must I spend in prayer? The thought that now possesses me is, how much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties of life? Well, the same may be said of worship. How much time may I spend in worship, not in this building, but how much time may I spend in worship and still be able to get on with the other tasks that God has given me? 
we must shout our praise to all creation. Psalm 22, 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 96, 7 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. In fact, your homework assignment for the week is to read Psalm 96, which is a psalm which is entitled, Worship in the Splendor of Holiness. What a great psalm to read to get us in a worshipful place. And the point is that we must not only worship privately, but our worship must be example to those unbelievers around us, so that they would also see the salvation and glory of the Lord. Well, our next verse is Psalm 51, 15 through 17, which says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, worship is the natural result of salvation. When we truly feel in our inner being this being the stunning reality that God chose us simply because, well, he chose us simply because he chose us. There is no reason for any of us to be chosen except for God's choice and God's love, and he chose because he loved us and he wanted to give us his salvation. And so we should be filled with overwhelming gratitude and joy. Why me, Lord? Why me? Thank you. Thank you. In Psalm 51, David, after he committed adultery and then killed the husband of the woman with whom he became involved, begs for mercy from God. He pleads, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. The truly repentant heart is a worshipful heart. And we are to be thankful always. Those thanks should bubble up through us and result in an outpouring of public gratitude and praise. When people say, oh, that's... It's amazing what happened to you. Yes, the Lord did that for me. And then you get that fish-eyed look where they're like, what are you talking about? Okay? But we, it doesn't matter what the look is that we get. We should tell people. We should be overflowing with this praise. David tells us in Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3, one of my favorites, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And now for the congregation, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Together. Well, so we're back to public worship. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. We do that by giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ from Ephesians. And we do that by boasting in the Lord. Note that boasting necessarily means telling other people. Jeremiah 9, 23-24 gives these examples of worship. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
We're told to shout for joy and be glad in Psalm 35. We are to worship in song as in Psalm 69. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Well, we don't offer those sacrifices. But magnifying the Lord with thanksgiving will please him more than showing up on Sunday and singing the songs in church. Just because that's what we always do. Yes, we are to worship and praise God even when things aren't going well. In Habakkuk, God tells the prophet that he's bringing judgment upon the nation of Israel. The prophet prays for mercy, but acknowledges that God's will or judgment will be done. He says at chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, The fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. True worship starts in the heart and in the mind. The Western church equates worship with singing and music. But music is only one avenue through which worship can be expressed. It can consist of music, prayer, praise, Thanksgiving, serving others, giving, preaching the word, reading the word, but all must be done from a heart of joy. Every one of these letters of the acronym is an act of worship. And the ultimate act of worship is to offer all of ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Worship is not only what we do in church, but is a way of thinking and living for God's honor and glory. God promised from the beginning and I'm talking about the beginning, that there would someday be a great assembly of Israel and all the nations before his throne. And this began to be fulfilled when Jesus started to build his church. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29 is a great picture of a worshipful assembly. In our worship in Christ's church today, we literally, literally approach the throne of God who is the judge of all. We enter into, we are in the throne room of God at this moment. We've seen pictures, verbal pictures of that throne room in the book of Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Revelation. We know that it's a glorious place. The author of Hebrews tells us, but you who have been saved have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Did you get that? Did you hear what the author is saying, what God is telling us? We gather... And we enter the assembly of glory through Christ our mediator. We come into the throne room of God, really, not metaphorically. Yes, it is a spiritual presence, but it is a presence nonetheless. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book tells us this is the reality of new covenant worship. It actually 
is worship in the presence of God. Though we do not now see him with our physical eyes, nor do we see the angels gathered around his throne, or the spirits of believers who have gone before and are now worshiping in God's presence, but it is all there, and it is all real, more real and more permanent than the physical creation we see around us and which will someday be destroyed in the final judgment. And if we believe Scripture to be true, then we must also believe that it is actually true that we ourselves come to that place and join our voices with those who are already worshiping in heaven whenever we come to God and worship. And our only appropriate response is this. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Are you presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship? Even here, even now, we sit in the throne room of God, listening to his word, offering praise and exaltation to him. Let us take this good news into the world around us so that others may experience this joy that we have. That's what true worship is about. Well, we've discussed light and how our congregation is a light to the world, the light on the hill in Hot Springs. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. The city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Yes, we are a city on the hill. We are the church of Jesus Christ. How brightly does our light shine? Is it pleasing to God? Jesus finishes with this at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is what this is all about. The glory of God, our Father, the King of the universe, the King of all creation. Let us be that bright shining light to those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is only through your good grace that we are able to do this, that we are able to worship you, that we are able to be a light to those around us. We pray that you would put your words into our heart that we might know, absolutely know, that what you tell us in your word is true and that we would be filled in gratitude which bubbles up out of us and is worship to you which is good and acceptable. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we celebrate the institution of communion, or the Lord's Supper. And so I'd ask the elders to come up for the serving of the elements. The early church began this celebration of the Lord's Supper immediately after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. And it is an act of worship, an act of our spiritual worship to God. In Acts 3, we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When we celebrate an open communion in this church, meaning that as long as you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you can partake in this communion. And we take this time now to examine our hearts and minds and put ourselves in a position of repentance, reverence, and worship.
Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, reminding them of Jesus' sacrifice and Last Supper and giving them the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And now would you pray over the bread, please? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your love, sacrifice of your Son, that we might be free from sin. And we seek and honor you in our lives. is the body of Christ broken for you. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my life, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Ryan, could you pray over the juice please?
and sisters, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Amen.